Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. That was Los Acastelocos, and it was only about two seconds of it, so you didn't really get a flavor, but uh, I'm experimenting with music. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest is Jeff Milder. Jeff is the author of the mystery thriller Escaping Reality and recently the science fiction novel Exit Pursued by a Bee. He's also the editor of the science fiction magazine Escape Velocity. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much. Welcome, uh, um, Maggie. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm a co-editor, by the way. By the way, I'm a co-editor of Escape Velocity magazine. Uh, Robert Blevins is the master in charge, and uh, he just passes over uh, some of the trickier things for me to edit. Thank you for that correction. That's right. I should mention Robert as well. Um, I'll ask you a little bit more about Escape Velocity later. But before we, we actually get into the questions, can you just, um, for the listeners, some of whom won't have read Exit yet, can you tell us a little bit about the book and then maybe read a brief passage for us? Yes, yeah, certainly. I'd be pleased to. Uh, Exit Pursued by a Bee is a science fiction mystery that explores the ramifications of a what-if. What if time were not the smooth continuity we normally experience? Einstein showed how time possessed by an object varies with its velocity, but humans have yet to feel those tiny changes. In Exit, the continuous timeline is abruptly altered, sometimes by fractions of a second, sometimes by a disruption allowing past and present to coexist. Such a happening occurs in Chapter 11, when a modern-day youth wakes up in a desert cave 20,000 years ago. The scene is told through the viewpoint of Okma, a local tribesman of that era. Imagine how his emotions and mind would cope if the prehistorical man saw a youth from the future dressed in jeans and sneakers asleep in his sanctuary cave. In a previous scene, a mysterious sphere emerged from the floor of Okma's cave and departed through the ceiling. Travelling slowly upwards, it remains visible in the sky. So this is chapter 11, just slightly abridged from what's in the book. Shouting instructions to avoid the hole, Okma sent the eager cur back into the cave. No wild cat screeched out of the entrance this time. He too felt uneasy last night, when Hanra's crone of a mother muttered incomprehensible incantations over a simmering pot, smelling of rotting fish, while throwing him malevolent glares. Now he looked above the hill and could just make out the spot of light ever moving upwards, the shiny orb that should have been his, its power transferred to him, making him leader. His face twisted while ruefully imagining wild nights with the girls he could have had, that Emzina who had no sores. Kerr barked a come-in call, so Ockmer followed his spear inside. The uneasiness remained, but tinged with expectation. Ah, that was probably it. He was picking up tomorrow. It often happened in advance of a storm. The hair stood up on his neck. Even the curled black hair on his head made an effort to point up at the sky. 
Flashes of weird images would enter his head. Silver balls charged around at a terrifying speed. Their legs rushing so fast, they were a blur. Sometimes, it wasn't an impossible vision. He'd see the northern savages coming down into the village, so they'd be ready for them. The cool of the cave welcomed him, but the inner sanctum felt wrong. The ceiling had a circle of vents lined up with the bottomless pit beneath. Ockmer's vision blurred for a second, making him stagger. He held out his arm for balance, being acutely aware to keep away from the well. Kerr yelped once, preferring to lie by the wall, watching the hole, then up to the ceiling for any further spherical operations. There be no more, Kerr. That magic orb was our chance, and it's flown away. Rubbing his face to calm himself, Ockmer sat in his favourite corner, rummaged in his robe, and threw a chunk of cheese to Kerr. It was particularly ripe, and with a sour wine, consciousness soon went for a walk for both man and beast. Ockmer awoke in a cold sweat. Before he opened his eyes, he detected a presence other than the ever-faithful Kerr, whose snoring he could hear. Ockmer's heart doubled its drumming in spite of silent instructions to be still. Faking sleep, he surreptitiously felt for his goat crook, and closed his hand around the comforting olive wood. Slowly he eased his eyelids open. No one there. He felt foolish, yet his instincts rarely disowned him. He'd felt this presence before, or rather the aura disturbance that accompanied it. Slowly he stood. Kerr, wake up, you useless lump! A worried canine eye opened, followed by a nose in the air, sniffing for demons, and finding one. With a whine, Kerr slunk off. That's it, no more treats for you today. As Ockmer watched the shamed dog leave, a tremor blurred his vision. He abruptly sat in the cave's gritty sand and held his head while squeezing his eyes shut. This was no ordinary tremor. Outside he'd seen the sand grains dance waist high while he hung on to the nearest tree. His head hurt, but he heard Kerr growl. Opening his eyes, Ockmer knew wide had a premonition. A stranger lay, asleep on the floor on the other side of the sphere's hole. He'd not seen a human with padded-out flesh, and it was white. The stranger had an odd attachment on his face. His face was pale like the belly of the snake Okma cooked last night. The man's robes were strangely coloured. An elaborate shirt-like green garment covered his upper body. Ockmer's eyes widened when he noticed the stranger's legs were wrapped in a blue cloth. His hands were white, and not just his palms. Maybe he'd been in a white clay bath like the hogs by the oasis. Ockmer was too afraid to get close in case this ghostly monster awoke. Ockmer should run, but by the gods it was his cave. And hadn't the sphere chosen his cave? It was the stranger who should leave. His hair seemed to be made out of fine straw. Ockmer, quivering, with his stomach yet again in a knot, moved around the hole while pointing his crook at the hair. Perhaps it was a strange hat. By the gods, the stranger had extraordinary coverings on his feet. Were they goatskin? They were whiter than his face. Kerr, behind Ockmer, growled again, just as his master made the stick reach the stranger's head. He flicked his crook with the intention of seeing if the straw was really hair. The stranger awoke, screaming. Ockmer fell back, 
and tripped over Kerr, who yelped before running off. Come back, you coward! But Kerr refused. But at least the stranger had stopped screaming. Struggling back onto his feet, Ockham shouted in self-defence, I was only checking your wrong hair. He patted his own head, and keeping the hole between them, pointed at the stranger's hair. A thought hit Ockmer like a bolt of lightning. The stranger must be a djinn. Out of the orb's hole had arisen an evil spirit, supposing it was here to stop the orb escaping. But too late, and now he'd be angry. He stole his attention from the djinn to his only escape route. Fear tightened all his running away muscles, although a working synapse told him escape would be futile. The fear won, and he leapt for the cave's entrance chamber, but Curd returned and blocked the gap. Damn it, Curd, he said, then turned when he heard a very human gasp. The stranger clutched at his arm. Only then did Ockman notice a dark patch in the green cloth. The djinn was hurt. Therefore he was no djinn. Ockham appeared at the stranger's face. He needed to see into his eyes, to read the person within. Beads of sweat emerged out of terrified skin. Ockham's confidence grew in proportion to the stranger's discomfort. Ockham pulled himself upright as tall as he could, even though he was much shorter than this giant. He must be from one of the southern tribes. He'd heard the rumour of white people in the mountains, but hadn't believed them. Are you from the mountains? The fleshy man frowned but looked straight at Okma, and opened his mouth, revealing perfect white teeth. He uttered sounds, probably words, but beyond Okma's recognition. Gibberish, thought Okma. He knew faraway villages had strange dialects, but this one must have chewed too much dream root. The stranger rolled up the sleeve on his left arm, a cut oozed blood, proving his reality. Okma dug in his own robe pockets for the healing plant leaves he always carried. In among the green furry trees, he unfurled a brown leaf. He sucked up spittle in his mouth, spat on the leaf, and then held it out to the stranger, who shrank back. Good leaf, it will stop the bleeding, said Okma, persisting. It was then he noticed the stranger's fingers were not only whiter, but also extraordinarily clean, and his fingernails had been bitten so neatly. He looked at his own brown fingers, part his skin colour, part dirt. His broken yellow nails hardly compared either. Nevertheless, this clean man was bleeding, and if it wasn't stopped, the buzzflies would be a real nuisance. The stranger shook his head as if in disgust. Ockma then knew this childlike man would have to be treated like a child for his own good. Ockma called out, Kerr, tell me where you are. In the adjoining cave, Kerr barked, making the stranger look over his right shoulder. Ockma leaned over and pressed the leaf on the bloody cuff. The stranger shouted, making no sense to Ockmer, who held the leaf firmly in place in spite of the ensuing struggle. Ockmer smiled to himself. In spite of his disadvantage inside, his strength was much superior. After a few moments, he withdrew his hand, and to the stranger's obvious disgust, spat again on the leaf and found a home for it in his robe. The young man examined the wound with one of his clean fingers, but he didn't seem pleased about it. Okma coughed for attention. He pointed at his own chest and said, Okma. Then he pointed at the stranger with one hand and held his other to his ear. The stranger must have played this game before because he nodded and said, Blake. Okma offered him a lump of his grey bread and a piece of cheese, but it was declined even when Okma gnawed off the worst of the fur. 
he squatted and made ready to nibble some himself. Blake rummaged in his clothes and produced what looked like a stick wrapped in a leaf, but too neat. He peeled it to reveal a shiny, thinner leaf and offered Okma a thin, pink stick. Without hesitation, Okma took it, and after seeing Blake do the same, he put it in his mouth. Gum, Blake said, pulling it out and back in. Okma realised Blake was showing how gum was to be chewed and not swallowed. Okma couldn't believe how sweet it was. He'd eaten honey and sweet berries, but they were sour in comparison. With his fingers, he pulled at a corner and stretched it out of his mouth. He sniffed at it, but didn't recognise the odour. He chewed again. Much of his food wasn't easy to eat. Snake was chewy, birds often bony, and some insects wouldn't stop wriggling even after swallowing. He again took out the gum, thinking it reminded him of the entrails of boiled white snake. He looked at the grinning Blake, who had both thumbs stuck in the air. Now the boy had shared food, perhaps he'd exchange weapons. Okma found his old knife in his corner. The sharp flint had dulled, but the boy might not notice. He passed it to him. Blake looked puzzled, but placed it in his clothing. Then Blake's face contorted with worry, and he clutched his right hip. His hands clutched at his garments, but he snatched them away again with the speed of scared bats. Through the blue cloth emerged a small, tiny boar, a shiny version of the one that escaped Oskma from this very cave. As both Okma and Blake stared in shock and fear, the sphere hovered for a moment and then shot up through the hole in the ceiling. Intuitively, Okma knew it was chasing the other sphere. On his back, he lay on the floor with his head and shoulders overhanging the hole and then looked up. Through the dark hole in the cave roof, he could see the sun glinting off both spheres, making them look like stars. Then they were one. It blinked, winked, gone. Okma rubbed his eyes, but only blue sky remained to mock him. Two magic orbs he'd had within his grasp, and he'd lost both. A low growl from Kerr entering the main cave at last made Okma glance over at Blake. Like the first sphere, the man's edges appeared blurred as if he was moving too rapidly for eyes to see clearly. Blake? Ah! Blake's voice came through the air. Then, after an increase in frenzied blurring, Blake vanished. Okma and Kerr raised their noses as they detected lingering whiffs of the metallic tang they've associated with thunderstorms. He must have been gin after all. They come and go, but usually in the elders' late-night gatherings after a few potions. He's not here now, Kerr, if he ever was. Come. He held out his fingers, which Kerr sniffed at and curled his lip. Ah, you smell Blake's food on my fingers. Okma snorted a laugh, but Kerr didn't seem pleased. He sniffed the air, then with nose to the sand, snuffled around to where Blake last existed. Okma looked at the image on the wall that he had scratched and coloured with burnt sticks and berries, of the sphere rising through the cave and out. He picked a sharp stone and added a stick figure of Blake. He added a large stomach while he laughed at the memory of the only plump person he'd seen. He added big feet and then a tiny circle for the baby sphere. Another bark. What have you found? Ah, his unused sticks of gum. Look, Kerr, at the patterned wrappings. I've never seen any leaves like this. Do you think Hanra would want it? Kerr snarled. Nor me. Should I hide it in Cardinuta's supper? I suppose not. Let the wild cats find it. He threw the gum packet onto the sand for the future. 
And that's the end of the Chapter 11 episode. Thank you for that, Jeff. That was a lovely um, taste, I think, of how in the book the past and present collide. Well, I, I just love that little uh, that little piece. When I have to do a reading at a, a Chester Literary Festival uh, a couple of months ago, I chose that one because, I don't know, just having the viewpoint through an ancient man looking at a modern youth seemed to appeal to me. <laughs> Yeah, there's plenty of humor there, but also um, it's more than a time quake, isn't it? You've got an event sort of in prehistory occurring yeah. simultaneously with an event in modernity, which really That's raises right. a lot of questions. Well, it does. I mean, in the physics, in the quantum mechanics of it all, it's, it's what we might call entanglement. Um, so, and of course, nobody really knows much about quantum mechanics anyway. As uh, Feynman said, if you think if you find somebody that says they understand quantum mechanics, they're telling lies. <laughs> um, but it does raise questions about what the nature of time is, even if I don't raise any answers. Mm. And and I think some of the potential implications. I mean, Okmos, you know, he's surprisingly intelligent. Uh, I think we all imagine this sort of grunting caveman, but um, he comes across as you know being quite sophisticated in his way. That's right, yes. I mean, they, they would have had family relationships, um, even if families weren't as families as we know them now, and they would have had to survive. There would have to be a certain amount of quick-wittedness to, to be able to survive, whereas we have streetwise now. You know, they had to have environment-wise then. Mm. Now, tell me, where did this book come from? Where did it originate? Uh, well, I was sitting on top of uh, Glastonbury Tor, uh, many years, uh, some years ago, um, you know, the Glastonbury Festival is quite well known in Britain anyway, and um, there was rock music in the distance, and I just had the funny feeling that uh, the ground was shaking, and it probably wasn't, it was probably me, uh, but nevertheless, it then occurred to me, just supposing, you know, there was something inside this tour, and uh, it's like, it like a conical hill, and uh, with St. Michael's Church on top, with ruins of the church. And it, it, just, it, it just bemused me to imagine that all these spiritual mountains, and there's one on each continent, at least one, like Uluru, uh, you know, that many people will think of as Ayers Rock, uh, in, in your country, in, in Australia, and uh, El Capitan in, in America and other places, uh, supposing they all had something inside them that was coming out, and therefore, you know, um, and what that something was, was in fact collecting little time differences or decoherences. And, um, but it also benews me to think that uh, where normally we have, when we have aliens in science fiction novels, they often invade or come from out, from, from elsewhere. Whereas in this book, I wanted them to have been inside Earth for as much as two billion years. And they're coming out, not coming in. And not only that, but they're coming out very slowly. So instead of the usual stereotype rockets taking off at escape velocity, uh, 25,000 miles per second and so on, we've got these very slowly moving spheres. But just because they're slow... Man, with all his science and technology, still couldn't stop them or investigate them. They, they were a complete enigma. And, uh, and, and, of course, the whole notion of speed is, is called into question. 
That's right. Yes, because uh, all that to do with time as well. Um, mm. you know, speed is distance divided by time. <laughs> so you start messing about with time, and you're messing about with speed. So. Yes, and and the notion of twenty billion years. I mean, after all, they they're coming out um, simultaneously for Akmar and for Calandra. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes. Yes, Kalandra's our feisty female protagonist who's, uh, for most of the book anyway, um, uh, a clever pilot who uh, is, who has a mission to chase after the spheres. Once, once the spheres leave, time becomes more chaotic on Earth. And um, I do a bit of... Re- I love the research. You know, I almost find the research for things like this better uh, as good as doing the writing and i found all sorts of uh, accidents but and natural disasters um that could be explained by having time being uh disturbing nature at that time and um and so i use those in the book quite ruthlessly although almost everything in there in the book has happened and uh, so all my little examples of airplane crashes and so on have all happened. It's just that I give a different interpretation about why they happened. Yes, the, the time quake. But tell me a bit more about the aliens. They intrigue me. They only seem to have, um, at least from our limited perspective, sentience or the ability to feel within Calandra's head. Well, was right. it difficult for you to res- resist making them more human? Um, I wouldn't think so. I would think they would be quite as far from human as you can possibly imagine, really, uh, or beyond what anybody can imagine, uh, which is a deliberate thing. I, I, I really think if, if we did encounter aliens, we, we would have very so little in common. We would find communication very, very difficult uh, indeed. It, it, it does amuse me, people thinking that... Um, you know, why aren't the aliens here? And maybe they have been here, or maybe they're here now, but they're so alien, we don't see them, or they don't see us. So, uh, we're in another dimension. Uh, or they see us as so trivial, uh, not to bother with us. And uh, so this is partly what the aliens were, did, were doing. because we can't really tell from the book whether it, the spheres are aliens or just artifacts built by aliens earlier. Uh, and indeed, as implied in there, the sphere started off as being tiny anyway and and grew within the earth but um but who knows and what aliens might be like and so that was part of the 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 idea in the book is that we make so many assumptions we make assumptions that we're civilized that we're intelligent, that everything would communicate by radio. And so I wanted to scupper all of those ideas, really. Mm. And and um, you've got your background in science. Do you think the good sci-fi has to be rooted first in science? Um, I suppose from a point of view of um, terminology, then science fiction must be fiction that's based on science. But it, um, but I don't know. I, I, in some ways, I prefer the American terminology of speculative fiction. Um, because they, that is just what it is. We're speculating about what might be, what might have happened if we changed a few things in the past. And uh, so rather than limit ourselves to this technology of science or the maths of science, 
that uh, we can just be more speculative about it, really. But of course, all good science begins with a hypothesis, which is pretty well the same thing as speculation. <laughs> well, you could say, yes, that's very true. And uh, a hypothesis doesn't have to be right or wrong. It's just an idea, a premise, uh, by which we can measure to see how how well we can't see even how right it is, how it conforms to our observations. So, um, so in that sense it is science in the sense that uh that well everything that is in exit pursued by b um isn't outrageous in the sense that it is based on known science and some and a bit of unknown science too <laughs> yes and it sounds to me like following a hypothesis along a path and saying you yeah. know you, you began with your what if and then That's you right. you played it out that's right, exactly, yes. I mean, I love that. I love, uh, one of my favourite science fictions in the past have been, uh, and, and even still now, I still love um, the old-fashioned type of science fiction where you have a pilot landing on a strange planet and something is different there to what he's ever experienced before. And then what if then, you know, I mean, just simple things like, uh, you know, what if gravity went sideways or varied, <laughs> enormously with height or whatever and and then what would happen then or if water uh, didn't freeze at zero it's uh, you know there, there's so many things that you could play around with with the what-ifs and uh, and I love all that sure now tell me a little bit um, we're, we're running out of time tell me a little bit about escape velocity how did yeah. you start it up and yeah, well, um, Robert Blevins is much more of a hard science fiction man than I am. Uh, but I edited a couple of his uh, books, Goodbye to the Sun and uh, The 13th Day of Christmas. And uh, he liked the way I edited things. So he wanted me on board an idea for having a hard science fiction magazine. There, There isn't another print magazine that I know of that is just for hard science fiction. Um, and so... It's not that we're against fantasy by any means, you know, I I still write vampire and ghost and all sorts of other stories, but it's just that we wanted this magazine just to be for hard science fiction. Having said that, there's a little bit of blurring of the edges as to what we actually mean by hard science fiction, but uh, that's where it's come from. And we also wanted to encourage new writers as well. Uh, you know, to be honest, we knew we weren't going to attract... Uh, the rich and famous writers to uh, give us their oeuvre. So, uh, um, although many of them have wished us good luck with it, uh, people like John Courtney Grimwood and uh, and Daniel Simmons and Jasper Ford as well. And Jasper Ford has got something coming up in the, in issue four when it comes out. Mm. And you've got a few few um, fairly high level interviews as well, don't you? That's right. Uh, the, the top science fiction literary agent in, in Britain uh, is John Gerald, and I, I know him reasonably well. I, I see him at um, the British fantasy conventions and uh, the British science fiction conventions here in Britain. And uh, so he was kind enough to give me a nice chat. And John Courtney Grimwood, a successful British uh, science fiction writer, uh, I spent a day with him in his hometown of Winchester at a conference. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so he gave me an interview as well. Now, where do you see Escape Velocity going? What would you like to see it doing, say, in five years? 
Well, we hope we'll be selling a lot more copies in five years. Uh, we'd like to have both the easing part of it as well as uh, the paper version of it going. Um, and we're, we're very pleased to have some of your poetry in it, as you are very uh, good to give us. And I'd like to see more of that sort of thing. You know, just change the media slightly and and have more contributions with cartoons and artwork. And we've had a little bit mix of all that in there already. Um, maybe definitely have, and we've only had three issues this, this year because of the financial problems in America mainly, but um, we're hoping to get four issues a year for definite in future and also to have, to come away from Lulu just a little bit for the print part of it to make it a bit cheaper for people to buy. Mm. Now, we've got one minute, so um, in that minute, can you tell me a little bit about the novel you're working on? Uh, is it oh, Zagra's right. Revenge? That's right. Zagra is uh, a very ancient place on the island of Gozo in the Mediterranean. It's a beautiful little place, uh, steeped in history. And uh, But in 1551, pirates raided it and took and abducted every soul that lived on there. And that happened in real life. And so all those souls are crying out for revenge. And that's what my book, Zagra's Revenge, is about. So it's a fantasy based on pirate, there's pirates in it and there's modern people as well who are related to those people and uh, and Zagra has the oldest building in the world over, older than Stonehenge, older than the pyramids and the gods there are going to help mm, Sounds wonderful we'll look forward to it um, Thank, you, thank very you very much, that is unfortunately all we have time for but um, it was terrific talking to you today Jeff this is our last interview of the year, so happy holidays to everyone, and thanks for all your support in 2008. I'm excited to report that our first author of 2009 will be one that I've long been a fan of, Louis Naura. He'll be talking to us about his latest novel, Ice. Ice is an epic love story, so quite a different tack. Um, and like all Naura's work, really, it transcends genre. So you won't want to miss that. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Maggie. Thank you.